if you are saved, if it's your desire to live for Christ, to follow him, to be obedient to his commands, then I can promise you that I know something about your daily life because it's true of mine as well. And that is that so many times our old flesh rises up and tries to usurp God from the throne of our heart so that we can call the shots, we can be in control of our life. And boy, that battle rages on and on and on. This morning, we're going to see a picture of that in the scripture as we begin looking at the man named Solomon. And Solomon is another, just as David was, just as many before him were. Solomon is a picture, a foreshadowing of Christ in so many ways. And we'll see one of Solomon's brothers is, is a picture of the flesh and how those two come to odds. And so I just want to encourage you today, as, as Jaron did so beautifully already, in your daily walk with Christ, it's easy sometimes to get discouraged with yourself and just get annoyed with yourself and think, man, again, Phil, really? You know, have you not grown more than this? Do you not love the Lord more than that? And we've just got to be careful because that can be, that can be healthy to a point, but it can also just be Satan whispering defeat into our ears. So I want to encourage you this morning. The battle is hard for everyone, and it's going to be until we die. It is, but we're called to stand. If you don't do anything else, Ephesians 6 says just stand. Stand. So I encourage you to take that to heart. Well, if God said that you could ask him for any one thing, and he would give it to you, what would you ask for? While you think about that, turn to 1 Kings chapter 1. In our study through the Bible now, we come today to the book of 1 Kings. First and 2 Kings were really one book in the original. They were split in half because of uh, just the size. Same thing with Samuel, same thing with Chronicles coming up. Well, in addition to answering the question that I just asked you about God offering to give you one thing, what would that be? This book is going to show us the answer to that question, but this is also a phenomenal book. It's going to teach us some incredible things. It's got some exciting stories. Uh, I think the boys and girls are going to love some of the stories coming up in this book. There's so much that we can learn from, uh, from this old book. Last time we finished up 2 Samuel chapter 24, and we saw that David was there uh, on the threshing floor of Arona, and he was uh, building an altar to the Lord, and that spot would later become the place where the temple will be built, and we'll actually get to that next Sunday, Lord willing, in chapters uh, 5 through 8 of 1 Kings. Well, since we saw David building that altar to the Lord, many years have gone by now, and we come to 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1, and it says this, Now, King David was old and advanced in years. Don't you just love how with one turn of a page in the Bible, a lifetime can go by? And here's David now. He's he's headed where we're all headed. He was old and advanced in years, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not get warm. Now, a pastor might tend to skip over these first few verses because they're just kind of bizarre to us, a little awkward maybe. They are, frankly, but here's, let me give you a summary of what happened. We don't know if this condition with David was caused by 
some kind of illness that he had. We don't know if it was just his age. We're not sure what was going on, but uh, no matter what his servants did, they couldn't get him warm. And so the verses tell us that his servants said, let's go find a beautiful young woman and bring her into the king, and she can sort of attend to him and serve him. And she can also lie next to him and keep him warm. And we're like, whoa, that's in the Bible? Yeah, it's, it's in the Bible. Now, this is just, it's a bizarre thing to us, but one thing that we need to understand uh, is that you know, we're so far removed from that culture 3,000 years ago. Uh, we're looking through our lenses today. I still think it's a bizarre custom, no matter what age you live in. But here's the thing. The kings in those days would continue to have children all the way through their reign. And it was a, it was a symbol of power. Okay, stability and strength because their sons were coming up and for sure they were going to be seated on the throne. And if he had one son who was maybe 40 years old and he had another son who was maybe two years old, well, boy, his family name could continue on for a long time. But if a king couldn't continue to have children all the way through his reign, his enemies would consider that to be a sign of weakness. They would see that king as being more vulnerable and more easily forced off the throne. So a beautiful young woman was often brought into the king to see if, you know, that might get his heart racing again, and maybe he could have children with her. Well, that might be what's happening here with David. I don't know. I certainly can't say one way or the other. I just wanted to give you that context that maybe what's happening here when David's servant said to him, let's go find a young woman and bring her in to keep the king warm and maybe bring some life back to him. But the Bible tells us that David did not know her, and that's the, the term the Bible uses for physical relations, says David did not do that with her. He chose to take another course. And again, you know, we look at that and we go, wow, what, a, what an extraordinarily inappropriate custom that was. And as I said, I, I'm right there with you. But you know, it's interesting as you think about that, don't we see people doing kind of the, the same thing today? You know, especially men, us men, I don't know what is wrong with us, but you know, men get to a certain age and they think to themselves, you know what, you know what I need? I need to go out and find myself a younger woman to really show that I'm a man and uh, to, you know, to uh, put the heat back in my life. And you see men do this all the time. It's just ridiculous. And so this is kind of, for me, any, every time I read this section, it's just a reminder. Hey, Phil, this was a dumb custom back then. You know, don't, don't repeat the custom today. David didn't go in that direction, though, the Bible tells us. But while David was in this weakened condition, one of his sons named Adonijah took advantage of the situation and tried to seize the throne from his father. What a nice guy. His father's on his deathbed, and he sees an opportunity to rise up, take the throne by force, and make himself king. Verse 5, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, that was one of David's wives, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. Uh, I only have five here, so we need to get that cranked up a little bit, I think. Underline that phrase, exalted himself. And underline the phrase, I will be king. And make a note of this, you know, draw a little warning sign or something next to that. Whenever somebody exalts themselves, you can be absolutely sure that it's not from God. God tells us repeatedly, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, 
and I will lift you up. Jesus said he would be the greatest among you, must be the servant of all, must become the least. And so that's our goal in life. By the way, do you remember someone else in the Bible who said he was going to exalt himself? Yeah, Lucifer, right. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 14, here's what he said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Wow. Well, what he found was that he was thrown out of heaven for that. I tell you, church, there's only one. There's only one who has been rightly exalted on high. There's only one. Philippians chapter 2 tells us this. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him, that is Christ, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. That's an interesting statement. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We need to keep that in mind as we go through life. Our, Our world teaches us You need the best of everything. You deserve this. You need to be promoted. You need to get on top. And it's just a, it's this endless hamster wheel that we get on. And I can tell you, I've been there years ago in the business world, you know, when I was flying all over the place and doing all this stuff, it was, it was never enough. Every huge milestone that we reached in our business, every accomplishment we had, it was great for about 10 minutes. And then it was back to reality because we knew we had to up that the next time. It never ends. So it's better just to humble ourselves as we go through life. Be willing to, you know, can I say this in, in a church service? Be willing to clean the toilets back there and do it with joy. That's, that's who we need to be. And push others up and say, no, you go, you take this one. You, and I'll tell you, I struggle with this. I don't, I'm not comfortable being up here. I'm not a public speaker. I can't stand being in front of people talking. I do it every Sunday. You know why? Because God called me to this. But I'm constantly saying to the other guys, no, you go up. You talk. You need to be up there. It's too much fill. I, I say that all the time, don't I, guys? There's too much fill here. There is. Listen, I want to encourage you. If you want your life to end well for the glory of God, humble yourself, go through life, and put others ahead of you. Think of others, put others ahead of you, and above all, put God and keep him on the throne. Well, David's son, Adonijah, wasn't willing to live that way. He seizes the moment when his father is at his weakest point, and he begins getting some people together who are sympathetic to his little devious plot willing to go along with his scheme, and they come together, and the Bible tells us here in this chapter that they hold this big ceremony, and it tells us something very interesting, that Adonijah did not invite a certain group of people. He didn't invite Solomon, his brother, because he knew that Solomon had already been chosen as the next king. He didn't invite a couple other guys, and one other one he didn't invite was the prophet Nathan. Why didn't Adonijah invite the prophet Nathan? I think it's pretty clear. Nathan was the prophet who had confronted his father David face to face years earlier and called him out for his sin. You don't think that story got around? There's no way Adonijah was going to have Nathan at this sham of a coronation ceremony because he knew that Nathan was going to call him out for his sin. 
Isn't it interesting when you're about to do something wrong, you stay away from people that you know are going to call you out for your sin? Isn't that interesting how, oh, you don't do that ever? <laughs> I have once in a while, right? You just, you avoid them. Hey, you want to go see that? Ah, no, not, not right now, man. I don't, I don't want to be in their presence, you know? Because just sometimes people's presence, without them saying a word even, can bring conviction to us. So that's what Adonijah is doing. He's, he's off on his own with his own group, and they proclaim him to be king. Well, Nathan heard about all this while it was happening, and he and Bathsheba, David's wife, hurry in to tell King David. And they reminded David that Solomon had already been chosen by God to be the next king. And so David gave them his word that Solomon would indeed become king. And in fact, before the day was out, all the arrangements were put together and Solomon was officially anointed as king. Now I want to point out something uh, I say interesting here, maybe not, something that maybe wouldn't stand out unless we pause to, to take a look at it. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33 says this, And the king said to them, this is David, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, You're like, wow, Phil, that is exciting. You're right. Ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. Now, kings in those days had a royal mule that no one else was ever allowed to ride on. And if anyone but the king dared to ride on the king's royal mule, he would be put to death. It would be kind of like someone taking the president's limousine for a joyride. You'd get in a lot of trouble for for doing that. So the Jews knew in that day that whoever was riding on the royal mule was the king. Now, look at what was later prophesied about the coming Messiah. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. And what Zechariah is prophesying is what we see happen in the New Testament when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. We go, ah, that's bizarre. Why would he specifically choose to do that? Well, it makes sense when you tie the pieces together from Old to New Testament. This was not a random choice. You know, Avis Renicar wasn't out of uh, Ferraris or whatever, and he got stuck with a donkey. This was a deliberate choice. He sent his disciples to get this donkey and bring it to him, one that had never been ridden on. Hmm. And Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on the donkey because he's fulfilling prophecy, and he's making it clear to everyone watching who understands this custom that he is the king. That's why they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They made the connection there. And so the more for us that we can tie these little seemingly unimportant pieces together from Old to New Testament, boy, it'll really help us understand this as we read our Bibles. Well, Solomon is now officially made the king. And he comes riding in on the king's royal mule. And when everyone over at Adonijah's fake inauguration ceremony, hears the shouts, and they they hear that Solomon has been made king, all the people, the Bible says, scatter in fear. You ever had rainy day friends? 
That was these guys. Like, hey, man, thanks for the punch. Got to go. And they, they took off in fear because they knew, man, they were doing something that was illegal. It was a threat against the king. And it also says that Adonijah fled and he ran to the uh, tabernacle and grabbed hold of the horns of the altar. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but when we looked at the tabernacle months ago, the altar where they would put the sacrifices had a horn on each corner, all four corners. And it was kind of a symbol of, of God's power, and it was a symbol of, of a safe place. And people, could, people who were in trouble could run and hold on to the horns of the altar. And it was kind of like in... Um, Hide and seek, you have home base, or you know, this is the safe spot, whatever they call it. It's been a while since I did that. But that's kind of what's happening here. And he's holding onto the horns of the altar and he's begging not to be put to death because he knows that's what's coming. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, we read this As the time drew near for David to die, he charged his son Solomon, saying, Boy, what a statement this is. I am about to go the way of all the earth. That's what sin has brought in, folks. Remember when we were going through Genesis like 12 years ago? I think it's Genesis 5. I'm just going from memory there. But we, we took a Sunday and we went through something that didn't seem exciting at all. But it, go, it lists person after person after person after person. And it says, this was so-and-so. He lived so many years and he died. Here's the next guy, he lived so many years, and he died, and he died. And look, it's a picture of what sin has done to us. The writer here seems to capture that moment when he's describing this for David. As the time drew near for David to die, he charged his son Solomon, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Now be strong and show yourself a man. What David is doing here is what all fathers should be doing with their sons, giving them a charge. And don't wait till your deathbed, by the way. And we'll see in a moment, David had not waited until his deathbed. He had taught Solomon this. But this is what men need to be doing with their sons. And I would say to you today more than ever, today more than ever, in a time when there are people out there who are not only trying, but royally succeeding in erasing the lines between male and female. And you might think, ah, well, that's just their choice. No, no, that's a satanic attack on the design of God. Make no mistake. That's not a political thing. And boy, if that continues in that direction, fasten your seatbelts. We were talking about this yesterday in the elders meeting and how this could affect the church coming up. Always, Satan's always there, you know, always there trying to bring Christians down and bring the church down. And today more than ever, we need fathers to say to their sons, be strong, be a man, and teach the boy what it means to be a man. We need godly men in our society today who will get off their rear end, who will stand up for the truth of God's word without apology and without fear. Boy, we need that, and we need it in Washington more than anywhere else. But what does that look like? You, you tell your son, you know, be strong, be a man. Okay, what does that look like? Well, David goes right on in verse 3, and he says this. Here's what it looks like. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Verse 4, that the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying... 
If your sons take heed to their way, in other words, watch out how you walk, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, God said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David is saying to Solomon, son, listen to me, the most manly thing you could ever do is to make sure that your life is governed by the statutes, the commandments, the judgments, and the testimonies of God. And if you do that, Solomon, God will take care of the rest. Hey, you know, I'll just hit this again. You want to know why our nation is in such a nosedive politically, economically, and morally? It has nothing to do with politics, folks. Here's why our nation is in so much trouble. It's because we are no longer governed by the laws of God. That's it. That's it. I wouldn't give you a nickel for the Democrats or the Republicans. They're not going to save us. They're not going to come to our rescue. We've got to get this. It's rare to find a person in politics who actually cares for us. It changes people when they get up there. We've got to be alert to this, folks. We've got to be alert to this. The Bible makes it very clear that any nation that forgets God will ultimately come to ruin. And I will just tell you this, never in the history of time has God been proven wrong in one thing that he's ever said. So first David told Solomon, walk in the ways of God. And then he warned Solomon in the remaining part of that chapter about some people who posed a threat to the kingdom. And he gave Solomon instructions on exactly how to deal with those people. But then in verse 10, we read these sad words. Then David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 30 years in Jerusalem. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. One of the first things that Solomon did when he became king was to heed his father's warning and go and rid the kingdom of all those traitors that he was warned about. You know, again, that seems harsh to us, and it is, frankly. But I'll just tell you this. There are times in life when we need to clean house. There are times in life when evil things just need to be done away with. They need to be dealt with. I've told you this before, if you walked into your baby's room and looked over the crib and saw your baby sleeping there and there was a rattlesnake coiled up at the other end of the crib, you wouldn't say, well, you'd kill that thing. Because sometimes evil just has to be dealt with. That's true in our hearts as well. We toy with things sometimes, like a cat playing with a mouse before he eats it, you know, batting it around. We do that with our sin, with our habits, with our thoughts, with our actions. Yeah, yeah, no, God says, man, clean house. Sometimes just deal with this. After David did that, he began to form alliances and trade agreements with nations uh, all over the region. In fact, he became famous for his alliances with other nations. And that was both good and bad. Chapter 3, verse 1 tells us that through an agreement with Pharaoh of Egypt, ring any bells from our studies? Pharaoh, yeah, Egypt, all that, not the same Pharaoh, but uh, through that agreement with Egypt, Solomon ended up marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Now just tuck that away, keep that in mind for a couple of Sundays from now, because this decision 
start Solomon on a bad path. But still, at this point, verse 3 says these wonderful words. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, except, oh no, except that he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Oh boy, keep that in mind as well for a couple of weeks from now, because that's the second thing that will come back to haunt Solomon. So we already see a couple of concerns here with Solomon. And yet, God, in his amazing grace, comes and appears to Solomon, and he says, he asked him the question I asked you when we started. Solomon, I'll give you any one thing you ask for. What is it that you want? Verse 6, Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. And listen to this, and I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Hello? Genesis 12 and following, this is exactly what God told Abraham would happen. Verse 9, therefore give to your servant an understanding heart, that can be interpreted wisdom, to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? And what we see here, the beauty in this is that Of all the things Solomon could have asked for, he asked for an understanding heart. He asked for wisdom, but he didn't ask for wisdom so that he could be seen as wise. He he, he asked for wisdom so that he could govern the people rightly according to God's laws. He knows that on his own he is totally incapable of leading God's people on the right path. And I just wonder, on a daily basis as we go through life building our kingdom, I wonder, do we ever pause and remind ourselves just how incapable we are of doing anything good without the power of God? Listen, this church can create all kinds of activity, but it doesn't mean a thing if God is not in it. It doesn't mean a thing. Verse 10, and it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for long life for yourself, nor have you asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern judgment, behold, I have done according to your word. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before, nor shall any like you arise after you. And God did give Solomon extraordinary wisdom. And in the last half of this chapter, we see an example of this. I'll just mention this quickly. There were two women, the Bible tells us, who each gave birth right around the same time. They both lived in the same house. One night, one of the women in her sleep rolled over and was on top of her baby, and she accidentally smothered her baby, and it died. She got up in the middle of the night 
She took her dead baby, she snuck over to the other woman's room, stole the live baby, and left the dead baby there and went back to sleep. And the Bible says that when the other woman got up the next morning, before it was really light, you know, she, she had, her, had her baby there and she realized, oh, my baby's dead. But then it says she recognized that it wasn't hers. And so this fight began, which ended up sort of in court, if you will, and they were brought before Solomon, the king, so that he could make a judgment in this case to determine who the real mother was. And these women are standing there fighting back and forth saying, no, she's the one who swapped the baby. I'm the real mother. No, it's the other way around. How's Solomon going to solve this? There's no DNA test back then. You know what Solomon said? Bring me a sword. What now? Did he say sword? Bring me a sword. They brought a sword in. Solomon says, cut the baby in half, give half to one mother and half to the other. Of course, Solomon had no intention of doing this. But immediately when he said that, the real mother cried out and said, no, don't hurt the baby. No, just give it to her. Don't hurt the baby. The other mother said, no, go ahead and cut it in half and divide it up. And of course, Solomon knew instantly who the real mother was. She was the one who cared for the baby. And it says at the end of that chapter that all Israel heard about this. Man, I mean, word spread. It says they were in awe because they saw that the wisdom of God was in Solomon. Wow, what a statement. They saw that the wisdom of God was in Solomon. And I wonder, back to the question that I started with, do we ever ask for wisdom? I don't mean like the one-time question thing. That was just to kind of get our minds moving of what's most important. But as we go through life, as we make decisions on the job or at home or at school, can those around us see God's wisdom operating through the decisions we make, the choices we make, the things we buy, the pleasures we pursue, the way we run our business, whatever it may be? Can those around us, even if they never say anything, you think, you think ever anybody has driven home after spending a day with you at work or school or whatever, and they've just been thinking, wow, man, just something different about her. I, you know, the wisdom he had in that moment, how... You know, that would be a wonderful thing for people to do that and have it turn them to God. But God didn't just give Solomon wisdom. He went further than that. Chapter 3, verse 13 says, And I've also given you, this is God speaking, what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. And if you walk in my ways. Now here's the if-then statement that God always gives to us. It's our choice. If you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Whenever you find those in the Bible, you should underline or circle if and then, because it's key. It's key to how this works. And so God is here. He's graciously giving Solomon both opportunities and reasons to obey his commands. Do we ever give our kids reasons to obey God? other than say, I'm going to beat the tar out of you if you don't obey. You know, God is giving him not only opportunity to obey, but reasons to follow him and obey. And you know, sometimes I think, I think we forget just how desperately God longs to do good to us. 
You know, yeah, like I said last week, we got to preach on sin and judgment and hell and eternity, all those things. But man, I, I have to stop and remind myself from time to time, there's not a mean bone in, in God at all, so, you know, to put it in human terms. God longs to do good for his children. But it all hinges on whether or not we choose to put him first. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33. He had just finished saying, the pagans, man, they're chasing after all these things that they need. They think they're going to find them elsewhere. And then he said in Matthew 6.33, but you guys seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you as well. Students, you want to know the secret to life? You ready? Here it is. Put God first. That's the secret to life. Put God first in all you desire and all you do, and he will take care of you all the way through. And why? Why put him first? What's the reason for that? Listen, it's because he possesses everything you need, not only physically, but spiritually as well. And it's only by seeking him first that you will find and obtain everything that you need. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to know how to make it through life? Learn how to fear the Lord first. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And guess who wrote that? Solomon did. The wisdom that, uh, that God gave to Solomon was, was so extraordinary that he, in fact, you know, we know he wrote a whole book on wisdom for life, and we'll be looking at that a little further down the road. Well, I close with chapter 4. First half of chapter 4 is, uh, makes for some interesting late-night reading, so tuck that away if you ever need it. It's just a long list of the names of all the leaders that Solomon put in place as he was beginning to build and expand his kingdom. And in the last half of chapter 4, we get a little glimpse of the vastness of Solomon's kingdom and the extent of his wisdom. I mean, it's just like a little peek into into what, what he really had. And I don't have time to read it all, but just to give you some idea, 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 21. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river, that's the Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. Wow. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And then it goes on in the next verses to list the enormous, unbelievable quantities of food and supplies that Solomon needed every day just for one day. And it's kind of breathtaking. And then, boys, you'll love this, I'm sure. Verse 26 says, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses. And, and somebody had to have a shovel and take care of that. <laughs> 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Verse 29 and God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart. It, it can also be interpreted breadth of mind or breadth of understanding. Like the sand on the seashore. Verse 30, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And that's saying something. Verse 32, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He also spoke of beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Put in parentheses, the wisdom of God. 
and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And folks, that right there is just, as I said, a little snapshot into what God brought about in Solomon's life of all that he had and all that he did. So that's just a a brief introduction now to this book of 1 Kings. But here's what I want to close with, and I don't want us to miss this. Someone could look at Solomon and all that he had and all that he did, and they could say, wow, what a guy. But that would be wrong. Because all the things that we've just read are not meant to highlight Solomon. They're meant to highlight God. What we're supposed to say when we read all this is not, wow, what an amazing guy, but wow, what an amazing God. And that should be the conclusion people come to when they look at our life. Do we live in such a way that people know that everything we have, everything we do, everything we pursue is all from God and for God? Now, I know that's easier said than done. I'm just encouraging you in that direction this morning, and all of us, myself too. Solomon was able to accomplish all of this because he asked for the wisest thing he could have ever asked for, wisdom. It's interesting, kind of, Solomon's kind of saying, I don't have wisdom, but he was wise enough to ask for the wisest thing he could ask for, which is wisdom. Well, how did he know that? I was wondering, how did, how did he know that? Well, if you look uh, at Proverbs chapter 4, Solomon writes these words. Proverbs 4, verses 1 and 2. Hear, my children, the instruction of a father, and give attention to gain understanding, for I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law or my instruction. For I was my father's son, tender and beloved in the sight of my mother. He, that's David, Solomon's father, he also taught me and said to me, let your heart retain my words, keep my commandments and live. And then he said in verse 5, get wisdom. This is David speaking to Solomon years earlier. Hey, buddy, get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her. That's wisdom. And she will preserve you. Love her, and she will keep you or guard you. Isn't that awesome? And so we get to go back in time now. How did Solomon know that this is the thing that he should pursue above all else? Oh, his, his daddy, David, even with his mess-ups. Maybe because of his mess-ups, David said, Hey, Solomon, you go through life, you're going to get a bunch of stuff. Above all else, son, get wisdom get wisdom. And then he said in verse 7, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. I love that. In all you're getting, get understanding. His recognition of the need, his need for godly wisdom and the desire for that wisdom was put into him by his father, David. So where can you and I go to find wisdom? We don't David's not alive anymore. He can't give us that speech. Where do we turn? Where do we find wisdom? Where does wisdom originate? Colossians 2.3 says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Boy, that's quite some statement. Listen, you can, you can search the world over for wisdom. You can study everything by Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. You can read every book and watch every video of Tony Robbins and Oprah and Dr. Phil. 
But until you make Jesus your desire and your goal, you may gain knowledge, but you'll never have wisdom. Because wisdom comes from God alone. It cannot be found anywhere else. Because Christ is the sum total of all wisdom and all knowledge. But as I said at the beginning, there's that battle that we all face. We all have a little Adonijah in us. Remember Adonijah? He was the son who said, I'm going to exalt myself. And I'm going to take the throne. I'm going to be king. And that's what we tend to do sometimes ourselves. We desire to remove God from the throne, remove his rule and kingship over our lives so that we can become king of our own lives. So let's remind ourselves today and tomorrow and going on, let's encourage each other with this, that God is the only king who can rightly govern our lives. He just is. Kids, please listen to that. As you grow up and you pursue all kinds of great things, God, God is the only one through Christ who can rightly govern your life. And if you put him first, if you follow him, your life will be blessed in a million different ways. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.